Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Well, welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us this Monday where U.S. markets are closed as America commemorates Juneteenth. The official end of slavery in this country. We'll talk more about that later on in the show for now. Today's closure, I think, a warm respite, a welcome respite after last week's stumble. The S&P 500 falling near 6%, keeping buyers humble. This as recession fears continue to rumble for European investors. Meanwhile, a session without grumble. Yes, I did my best. The major index is higher as bond yields steady over there. A mixed bag in Asia too, with China today leaving key interest rates unchanged. That was, however, as expected. That said, stepped up rate hikes in the United States and other nations, triggering what I call liquidity fragility. It's pressuring riskier assets as people take money from those sectors, like Bitcoin, of course. Bitcoin bouncing above the $20,000 level today after a weekend crypto crumble that saw prices plunge below $18,000 per Bitcoin. That's the lowest levels that we've seen in a year and a half. Commodities also pressured as hawkish central banks attempt to weaken demand amid inflation elevation and growth fears bite. Brent under a bit of pressure today too. You can take a look at that. It fell some 7% last week. Its first weekly drop in over a month. Copper also a key barometer of global economic strength, dropping more than 4% in the past week too. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen repeating the White House's mantra over the weekend that recession is not inevitable. But as the latest U.S. economic numbers are pointing to a slowdown and an increasingly downbeat consumer. And the catalyst for much of this, of course, the war in Ukraine continues. And that's where we begin today. Ukraine's president says Russia could intensify its attacks in retaliation for Ukraine moving closer to EU candidate status. We should expect greater hostile activity from Russia, purposefully, demonstratively, this week exactly, and not only against Ukraine, but also against other European countries. We are preparing. We are ready. We warn partners. Inside Ukraine, we're getting a look at the moment Russian forces seize control of the eastern city of Lyman. This video from a Russian soldier's body cam shows troops moving past destroyed buildings before entering a local government building. For more, let's go to Sam Kiley, who's in Kharkiv for us. Sam, great to have you with us. The consequences that President Zelensky was warning about also going to be evident where you are too. Be specific there first. What are you seeing there? 
Well, they're all too relevant to what has gone on here in Kharkiv. I'm in a former government building, but it's still a government building, but there's not a lot left of it. Targeted in the first few weeks of the assault when uh, Kiev and Kharkiv, which is the second largest city, Julia, were uh, the principal targets of the Russian onslaught. Now, whilst uh, Kiev may have slipped down the target list following the successful defence of that city, here in Kharkiv there's been uh, a slight intensification, particularly of overnight shelling and uh, bombardment by longer-range missiles. Uh, And we've also been speaking to government officials who've been telling us and showing us the evidence of a Russian build-up. There's only 25 or so kilometres, some less than 20 miles to the border with Russia here. And there is definitely, as far as the Ukrainians are concerned, a build-up of heavy armour, but importantly of tanks, uh, which would indicate to them that Kharkiv is likely to be subjected to another assault. Now, whether that's directly related to the accession process that the Ukrainians are hoping to join to join the European Union uh, is a moot point because ultimately he, the president of Ukraine is right that it was the fact that the Ukrainians wanted to join the European Union in the first place that caused the toppling of the former Russian-backed president here, provoked the Russian invasion perhaps of 2014, because ultimately what is an existential threat is a pro-European or a member of the European uh, family of nations that used to be firmly part of uh, effectively the Russian Empire with a substantial Russian-speaking population existing as a prosperous democracy on the doorstep of Russia herself. That, for Vladimir Putin, is something he simply will not countenance. Whatever else his arguments might be for behind the invasion, that has to be, as Zelensky rightly points out, pretty near the top of the list, Julia. Yeah, if not right at the top. Sam Kiley, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Germany firing up coal-fired power plants as concerns grow over gas supplies. Economy Minister Robert Havoc said Sunday security of supply is guaranteed, even though he admitted the situation in the gas market had got worse. Claire Sebastian joins us now on this. Claire, great to have you with us on this too. It's a painful step backwards in terms of energy policy for Germany, but clearly the uncertainty is making this a necessity. What more do we know and do we have any sense of how long this will be required for? You know, Julia, we talked about this uh, all along. You cannot just replace Russian gas with gas. Uh, and now we're here and we see not only Germany, Germany but also Austria saying uh, today that it's going gonna, it's gonna, to um, convert a decommissioned district heating plant so that in an emergency it can use it to produce electricity using coal. The backdrop, of course... To this is that the Nord Stream pipeline, Russia reduced the flows of gas through the Nord Stream pipeline, which flows from the Baltic Sea through to Germany. They reduced that by about 60% uh, last week, making a very serious situation for Germany, putting under enormous strain the emergency plans they already have in place to wean themselves off Russian energy. So this is why the Vice Chancellor, Robert Harbeck, says this is serious. They're now racing, really, to avoid what could be a winter of discontent, essentially. They need to refill their storage units. They've got the disruption with the Nord Stream pipeline. They've also got the uh, LNG, the big LNG producer in the United States, Freeport, which now says it won't return uh, to full production until the end of the year. And you see it there, European gas futures, they, they spiked in March when the conflict began. They're now coming up again, uh, up about 50% in the last week, 6% again this morning. All of that compounds the pressure here. And that is why Germany says... Even if it's for a transitional period, they need to do this with coal power plants. And they are also putting in place, Julia, an incentive for industry to use less gas, sort of an auction 
mechanism because, of course, you can't just do it on the supply side. You have to reduce demand here as well. Mm. It's sort of rationing by any other name or at least trying to uh, trying to apply it in order to build those supplies. I want to talk about Lithuania as well and specifically uh, Kaliningrad and the decision that the Lithuanian, Lithuanians have made to uh, ban transit of goods via this region. And clearly the Russians are very annoyed about this. Talk us through the importance and relevance. Yeah, I think we should look at the map actually to really mm. see what we're talking about here because Kaliningrad is of course the, the Russian exclave. It borders uh, Lithuania and the Baltic Sea. You can see it there, very small uh, on the map. But essentially that is Russian territory uh, and there are exports that go by train uh, through Lithuania uh, back to Russia. Lithuania now says it will ban uh, the transit of goods that are under EU sanctions. Those include things like coal, metals, construction materials, uh, advanced technology. This of course is not, not a tightening of sanctions but a tightening of enforcement uh, when it comes to sanctions. Russia very upset about this. They've said, uh, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, has called it illegal. He said it's a violation of everything. And the Kremlin has now summoned Lithuania's charge d'affaires in Russia uh, to demand a, a lifting of this ban. We know that these kinds of input products have been hit hard by sanctions, Julia. So this just cuts off another route of those products to Russian territory. Yes, no bravado on uh, the irrelevance of this action. Uh, the Kremlin seriously annoyed by this and stating it. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Now, the summer travel season is here and many of us are hoping to get away. The problem is airlines and airports are struggling and that means delays and cancellations. In the United States alone, more than 900 flights were cancelled on Sunday. EasyJet, meanwhile, says it's cutting 10% of its capacity in July until September. Heathrow and Gatwick airports are asking airlines to reduce the number of flights. Richard Quest put that to Willie Walsh, the head of the International Air Transport Association. Listen in. There have been problems at some airports. It's isolated. It's not every day of the week. It's not every week of the summer. You know, you have to expect as the recovery took, uh, you know, gathered pace, it actually was moving much faster than people had expected. I'm going to actually express some sympathy for airports, which is the one and only time you will ever hear me say this. But I think it has caught them by surprise. These issues will be addressed. Alan, you've had Amsterdam asking KLM to reduce flights. Yeah. Gatwick is now asking people them yeah, to Heathrow. reduce flights. Heathrow, I mean, major... There's, there's three airports. Come on. There's thousands of airports around the world. So we pick on three airports, who I love picking on, by the way. And, and you can add Dublin into the mix, who've had problems. But I, I've gone through all of these airports. I've flown through Gatwick, I've flown through Amsterdam, Heathrow, Dublin. You know, yes, it is busier. But it's not like it's portrayed that it's chaos there every day of the week. There are problems. The problems will be addressed. Are the problems with the airlines who furloughed and laid off and now can't get back or the airports who did similar or are both guilty? Uh, No, I think, to be fair, there are airlines with problems as well. But I have a lot of sympathy for airlines who furloughed and laid off people, particularly in the UK. Uh, Because if you look at it, in, in September of last year, when the UK government ended their support for the airlines, If you look at who was being supported, 38% of airlines were still availing of the, or 38% of airline employees were still availing of the support scheme. And it was cut off overnight. You know, the, the UK was actually very slow to recover in the fourth quarter of last year and the first quarter of this year. 
it's only in the second quarter that things have really started picking up. So what's the number one issue for IATA? I would say the number one challenge that airlines will face will be the uh, price of oil. Uh, you know, we have seen that significantly spike this year. We estimate that the price of a barrel of jet is at 125 US dollars a barrel. That's as high as we've seen it for a long, long time. Now, good news, airlines are somewhat cushioned from that because they do have some hedging in place, which clearly will you know, soften the blow in 2022 and to some degree in 2023. But ultimately, that price is going to impact on airlines and it is going to impact on consumers. And Richard comes live from Doha tonight, where the IATA conference is taking place. Expect plenty of interviews from aviation's biggest players. Quest means business at 9 p.m. in London tonight, 10 p.m. in Berlin. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Macau, the world's largest gambling hub, is rolling out mass COVID testing after dozens of locally transmitted cases were discovered over the weekend. Selena Wang is following the story for us now. Selena, it's not just mass testing, it's closures of banks, school, government services, but not those casinos. One wonders who's going to be going to those casinos in light of of what we're seeing. What more can you tell us? Yeah, Julia, we're seeing all non-essential businesses close in Macau, but those casinos are remaining open to your point because this is the very heart of Macau's economy. This is the world's largest gambling hub. It's a semi-autonomous Chinese territory, but they need to keep those casinos running. The heart, the soul of Macau, because not only is more than 80% of government revenue coming from the casino industry, but the majority of the population is either directly or indirectly employed by this gambling industry. So we are seeing Macau, however, follow China's zero COVID playbook. They are instituting several days of citywide mass testing, shutting down schools, banning in restaurant dining, in addition to closing those non-essential businesses. But even though those casinos are allowed to stay open, foot traffic is expected to dramatically drop since authorities are urging residents to stay at home. And we have seen investors react to that. We saw casino stocks in Macau plunge, sands China at one point falling more than 8%. And it's not just this that is hitting the economy of Macau. It has been under pain for a long time since the pandemic began because Macau also relies on tourists, millions of tourists, to spend at the casinos. But its borders have been shut to everyone except for residents of Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China. But even those residents have to, many of them, have to quarantine for 10 days upon arrival. And also in response to this most recent outbreak, the neighboring sitting in Guangdong province, where many of the Macau employees actually live. They are now instituting a quarantine period for people coming in from Macau. Now, in addition to this small number of COVID cases, the reason why we're also seeing Macau react so strongly to this is because we're talking about a few dozen new cases, but it does end an eight-month streak in Macau of zero COVID cases. So this is a big deal. And Julia, meanwhile, in mainland China, we are seeing COVID cases come down on China Monday. On Monday, China reporting just two dozen COVID-19 cases. But we are still seeing these rolling lockdowns, localized lockdowns. And people here in Beijing, they remain on edge. And in some cities, like in Jilin, in a city in China, that a place in China that has been dealing with severe COVID outbreaks on and off, well, over just one COVID case, they are instituting mass testing and they've temporarily shut down transportation. Julia. Wow. Zero COVID policy works, but at what cost? And that's the key. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that.
French President Emmanuel Macron's centrist coalition has lost its absolute majority in the National Assembly. It will still be the largest bloc, but fell short of the 289 seats needed in the final round of elections on Sunday. Leftist Assembly member Jean-Luc Melchon is set to lead the main opposition bloc. Okay, straight ahead on First Move, hard landings and soft markets. Can recession be avoided? Ken Rogoff joins with his take. And feeling flat, robots rescue EV owners in need of a charge. Novel solutions for what's becoming a common problem. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Fed Chair Jerome Powell travels to Capitol Hill later this week for two days of testimony on the health of the U.S. economy and the direction of interest rates. We know the direction. Powell set to testify amid new signs that Americans are beginning to pull back on spending as the inflationary crisis intensifies. Fears of a hard economic landing and a weakened consumer leading to softer stock markets in recent weeks. With all the major U.S. averages seeing sizable falls last week in particular, the worst week on Wall Street since the COVID-19 lockdowns. The problem is inflation's rise is a global phenomenon. Trade unions in the U.K. protesting over the weekend against the government's response to rising prices. Demonstrators demanding that Boris Johnson's government do more to tackle the cost of living crisis. And troubling numbers out of Germany today, too. The producer price index, the measure of inflation at the factory gate, rising at a record pace last month. It was a more than 33% spike. Ken Rogoff joins us now. He's former IMF chief economist and current professor of economics and public policy at Harvard University. Professor Rogoff, Ken, fantastic to have you on the show as always. Big picture, this is part of the problem. It's a global issue, whether it's pricing pressures, whether it's global slowdown. There's no counterbalance, really, wherever you look in the world to support economic growth when most nations are slowing. And indeed, um, there are supply chain problems, particularly from China, what's going on in Russia, Ukraine. And we're having a hangover from the post-pandemic stimulus, particularly in the United States. It's tough to ask for absolutes uh, in a world with so much uncertainty, which is part of the problem. But I think one of the big questions being asked is whether or not the U.S. economy in particular can avoid recession, even a hard landing. What's your view at this moment? It seems more likely than not the U.S. will have a recession. A lot depends on what the Federal Reserve does. If it is determined to bring inflation towards, say, two or two and a half percent within a year and a half, then I think the odds of a recession are extremely high. I don't think it can bring it down that fast. Right now, they're talking tough, saying that by the end of 2023, they'll be you know, down in the two and a half range. It's, uh, they think the economy will have a very mild recession in that event. I don't think so. I think it would be pretty severe. I think what's going to happen is as central banks start hiking rates, their tough talking will start changing. They'll start looking at the recessions going on around them and they'll start saying, well, inflation's down a lot. It's still too high, but we're going to take our time. So you're saying that the Fed's forecasts are and remain fairy tale. I think they're very optimistic. They're mm. assuming a lot of things that can go right, will go right. And that hasn't been happening. So is the message here perhaps in that at some point they need to give up and 
accept that we're going to have higher inflation for a while, that they're not going to be able to, as you said, hike interest rates to the point where they bring inflation back to that two, two and a half percent target. They have to abandon that hope and we just have to accept inflation. What? Four percent, four and a half percent. How low do you think they can bring it? I think they'll bring it towards three and a half, four percent. I don't think they're going to give up on it. They're just going to say it's going to take time. Back when we were up here at the end of the 80s, early 90s, Alan Greenspan took many years to bring it down from four and four and a half percent down to two percent. And I think that actually is the right thing to do with all these supply shocks. I don't think you want to brutalize the global economy all at once. This is partly a demand shock that needs to be counterbalanced, but there are things going on like the lockdown in China you talked about earlier, Russia-Ukraine war, many other things that simply monetary policy uh, can't give you everything. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Uh, growth is lower, inflation's higher. When you have these shocks, you can bring inflation down some, but you kind of have to ride it out. Is there something that Congress can do to support growth? And we've seen all sorts of things being talked about this weekend. Um, prescription drug price controls, lifting tariffs on, on Chinese goods, a gasoline tax break, windfall tax on energy companies. Um, do any of these move the needle, really? And, and are they passable, I guess, is the, the bigger question here. Is it OK to spend more money? Because I think there's a realisation, to your point, about the, the, the demand side of this economy, that, that spending is part of what's got us here. Well, certainly pretending that this inflation is anything other than macroeconomic, in other words, big global supply effects, big demand effects, that it has to do with prescription drug pricing or tinkering with gasoline prices. This is just fantasy. They're grasping at straws. It sounds so much like what we were hearing in the 1970s as politicians were trying to use these very weak uh, tools which actually make things worse. There may be a need to have some uh, spending to protect the really low income people, but what they can't afford to do is just some massive stimulus adding on to what they did too much of already. I think that is would be a mistake. It's probably not going to happen, but they certainly could expand the social safety net without necessarily making things a lot worse on the inflation front. I think you'd probably get an even more dramatic reaction in financial markets if that were the case, too. And I think one of the big questions here is what and how do financial markets stabilise at this moment? You wrote an interesting op-ed on cryptocurrencies looking at the, the regulation endgame, which was fascinating. You've used the term bubble in the past. Given what we're seeing just in the short term in, in the cryptocurrency markets in particular, is this bubbles popping, a bubble popping, or are we not yet there? Well, I mean, I think everything, housing prices, art prices, stock prices, crypto prices are very sensitive to interest rates. When the interest rate's zero, prices can be practically anything. They can go to the <laughs> sky. But now as interest rates are becoming somewhat more realistic, uh, it's particularly hitting hard at the futuristic things. Tech's gotten hit very hard because a lot of its profits are out in the future. And crypto, to some sense, is a fantasy way out in the future. I don't know that it's going to go to zero. I'm not saying that. But it's very sensitive to interest rates. It's not surprising. What hasn't happened with crypto, and I think eventually will, is much more severe regulation. And that's going to hit some cryptocurrency, some digital currencies, very, very hard. 
others which are, go- are going to prove more resilient may do well. Well, on the one side, you've got incredibly powerful lobbyists now in the, the crypto sector. Perhaps they're a little less uh, aggressive now, given the loss of, of financial wealth. But you have got lobbyists that are, are pushing government to enact lesser regulation, perhaps, than they will. And maybe that's smarter regulation. We can debate that point. But what we've seen, I think, so far is, I think, 90 central banks now around the world, according to the Bank of International Settlements, are looking at central bank digital coins. It's almost like that's the way to go to circumvent the the rise of these decentralized or or private digital currencies. Where's the balance between these things, Ken? And we're talking about years in terms of regulation either way, because there's a lot of consumers here that have been hurt. Well, you're absolutely right that the lobbyists have been piling in. Uh, I'm sitting here in the United States where you know, 20% of the advertising for the Super Bowl, our biggest event, was crypto. Right. You can see it all over the place. <laughs> it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Um, and they're buying people. There's no question. Colorado, Florida are competing to be the next El Salvador, and there are countries like Singapore that are want to be the next Switzerland. Uh, they th- they Switzerland in the past, money laundering could go through there, now it can't. Uh, but they're seeing the possibility this might be a new way. There's a lot of jockeying, a lot of lobbying. I think you're right, it'll take years for the regulation to set in, but it has to because you can't just allow a huge part of the financial sector to migrate to things that can't be observed easily, uh, for, not just for financial stability, but for collecting taxes, things like that. I do think it will take years and uh, we're still very, very much in the early innings of the regulation, but I promise you it's coming. I'm just imagining what uh, Governor Ron DeSantis and uh, Miami Mayor Francis (laughs) are thinking of being um, accused of competing to be the next El Salvador. (laughs) Apologies. It's not mine. Professor Rogoff, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Soon, I hope. Thank you. The former IMF chief economist and current professor of economics and public policy at Harvard University as well. Great to have you with us. Okay, after the break, Juneteenth in the United States is a moment to celebrate freedom, but a lack of financial knowledge puts the American dream out of reach for millions. I speak to the CEO of one group trying to change that. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets closed this Monday in observation of Juneteenth, a new federal holiday marking the end of slavery in the United States. On June 19th in 1865, slaves in Galveston, Texas, learned they were free. And President Biden signed a bill making the day a federal holiday last year. Still, for many people, the American dream remains out of reach. Operation Hope, an Atlanta-based nonprofit, is working to advance financial literacy, providing free, personalized coaching and education to low-income families, part of tackling this challenge. Joining us now is John Hope Bryant, founder, chairman and CEO of Operation Hope. John, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Let's talk to you first, because it helps us tell the story and and what you're tackling. I read this weekend that 60 percent of Americans don't even know what Juneteenth represents. We have many states that don't acknowledge this as a a holiday at this stage. Is it a cause of frustration or do we need to apply patience? Uh, No, I think that all good things take time. And uh, black people in America are used to being undervalued, underestimated and not completely considered. The reality is. Most people don't know there was a Freedmen's Bank in 1865 chartered by Abraham Lincoln to to teach free slaves about money. Abraham Lincoln was trying to pivot 
former slaves as an obligation that he thought that the country had into the free enterprise system. We'd already had 40 acres and a mule two months before that. People don't know that story either. We, we, it was not good land. It was along the coast in an agricultural age. But we worked that land, Julia, so hard. They said, my God, they're so industrious. Give them a mule. And then came the bank the next month. And then Lincoln was killed the month after that. That was four-month period, 40 acres, a mule, a bank, and then Lincoln's assassination. So we're clearly industrious, and we're worthy of investment. In fact, we're the wealthiest investment in – we were the wealthiest asset in this country in 1840, unfortunately, in the, the business of slavery. No one acknowledges that. We built this country for free for 270 years. No one acknowledges that. And it goes on and on and on. And I think that, that being underestimated is, frankly, part of our magic sauce, but – Today, we need to move forward. We need to pivot and understand that there is uh, an untapped asset in this country uh, who did not get the memo on free enterprise, capitalism, economics, and opportunity. And it starts with African-Americans, Julia, but it's also poor whites, more poor mm-hmm. whites than poor anybody else in this country. It's also Native American Indians who are in, uh, and women who are left behind. And I think that 2 to 3% of GDP, gross domestic product, is locked at the bottom of the economic pyramid. And if we just look at this color as green now, not red or blue or black or white, as in political party or color. The color is green. Uh, we can now come up together and realize that we're better together. But we've got to get people the memo on how this economy works and treat people with respect as being a contributor and an asset producer. I mean, there's so many things I love in that, that this is about <clears throat> taking the power back. It's about self-empowerment, what you're doing and providing financial literacy for all. It, it applies in particular to minority communities because their earnings on average are lower, to your point. But this is about self-determination in many ways, too. And actually, it's never more important than moments like this where interest rates are rising, mortgage rates are going yeah. up, and the majority of Americans, whoever they are, actually don't understand the implications of these. And the cost of the economy into these individual yeah. families is, is huge. Yes, and I believe, as you know, that financial literacy uh, is the civil rights issue of this generation. I didn't say the black issue of this generation. No. <laughs> I didn't say the minority issue of this generation. It is the civil rights issue. Uh, for, for this generation. And Dr. King famously said in this, said in this town that I'm in now, Atlanta, the, Georgia, the moral capital of America, he famously said uh, that we're here to redeem the soul of America. He didn't say I'm here to save black people. I, I think that we've got to understand that we're all wrapped up in this mosaic together. And this issue, i.e. international, is a global issue. America would never have been the beacon of freedom had we not been that, uh, kept our promise for African Americans. We never would have been the beacon for Polish people and Jewish people and Italian people. Uh, and, and, and folks freeing uh, other parts of the world. The Ukraine right now is looking at America as a global symbol. Uh, so this, this new issue is in the suites, Julia, not the sweet streets. The streets was about protesting in the 60s. That was civil rights. Now it's about economics, freedom, and opportunity in the suites, business suites. That's civil rights, economics. Mm-hmm. And me and the CEO of Walmart, uh, the CEO of Walmart, the number one Fortune 500 company in in the country, Doug McMillan, are partnered together on financial literacy for all uh, to, to take the work that we've done at Operation Hope, and he's done at Walmart, and try to inspire the Fortune 500 to embed this now into their business plan, and that's working. What does it mean in practice, John? Because if I look over the last decade, I mean, financial literacy, the literacy gap is actually widened. So for all the growth in business yeah. that we've seen and, and the economic growth that this country represents, I know now there's never a more important time than today to, to get going on this. But what does it mean in practice? That's an excellent question, Julia. Uh, and during the pandemic, let's start with the macro. 
uh, African Americans, Citigroup reported that the African American discrimination accounted in the last 20 years for $16 trillion of lost GDP. <laughs> trillion. Yeah. <laughs> and if we just knock it off right now and give people the tools they need, you'll pick up a trillion dollars a year of initial GDP in the economy. That's that's green. That's not red or blue. That's not black or white. That's green. Uh, the 64% of all Americans, re- read middle class people too, don't have $400 for an unplanned event in the largest economy in the world. 70% of this country, people that you and I know, living from paycheck to paycheck, uh, too much month at the end of their money, uh, struggling right now because of higher gas prices and other things that are really impacting their already stretched pocketbooks. They got too much month at the end of their money. This affects everybody. But when white folks have a headache, black folks have pneumonia. In a practical sense, half of black, black America has a credit score below 620. Now, for those watching this from around the world, that means that you, you're locked out of the free enterprise system. You can't get a mortgage below 680, not a good one. You can't get a good auto loan. You, you certainly can't get a small business loan if you have a great business idea and we need business leaders like me to come up and, and access capital. So that's an opportunity, Julia, right now for banks. Get, get the banks, get, get people financially coached up as we're doing at Operation Hope. Get the bank out of the no business. Sorry, I can't do this for you if you don't qualify. And back into the yes business because the color, again, is green. So we're moving credit scores with financial coaching, 54 points in six months, Julia. Wow. Yes. 120 points in 24 months. Nothing changes your life more than God or love than moving your credit score 120 points. <laughs> and, and that changes everything because all of the problems in, this, in, in the communities here in America and around the world, all, if you look at them, there are 500 credit score neighborhoods. All of them. Yeah. Yeah. Just give people the basic tools to understand the implications of what's damaging that score and you can fundamentally change someone's life and give them better access. Um, To your point, though, and you said it a few times, um, this is not black, this is not white, this is not uh, blue, it's not red, it's green, because it comes down to money and access to it and showing people how they can make it and protect it. Um, Does that mean you've given up on politicians? Because you've advised presidents on both sides of the aisle. It's not a Democratic thing, a Republican thing, and we're sort of resorting to self-help and to the business community. Have you sort of given up on politicians? Because that's, to me, heartbreaking in many ways. Uh, no, I'm not giving up at all. And again, I just think your it's question is just brilliant. You get right <laughs> to the point of the matter. No, it's not. About, it's about it's about strategy, Julia. That that the White House is about one person. It's about who's in the office. You got to give that person a good reason to do what you want them, him or her, hopefully in the future to do. Dr. King, when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, came back, talked to the president about another civil rights bill. The president said, I'm sorry, I don't have that kind of power. So Dr. King and Andrew Young, my mentor, went to uh, March in Selma. The results of that was the president got power from the streets and the suites uh, because it was a it was the private sector that integrated the South, not the government. It was Woolworths, J.C. Penney, uh, corner corner uh, the uh, little soda shops. That was the private sector that, that took the whites only signs down. That gave him the power. That plus the marching and the protesting and the public images on TV gave the president the power to create another civil rights bill and another one. End up signing four under Dr. King and Andrew Young's leadership. I think we've got to get the president and the Congress and the Senate uh, the power. Uh, of the people. We, so we're going to go, 88% of all jobs are in the private sector. Let's go to the Fortune 500. Look, Julia, wouldn't it be beautiful if, if the Senate and the Congress at some point found their wisdom to find the past civil rights, financial literacy legislation that funded K through college financial literacy for all? Everybody. Uh, who would disagree with this? This is something we could prove that Republicans and Democrats can find it some works. reason, some way 
to work together. Yes, that we are not dysfunctional. <laughs> so I think this is a place that uh, at the right time where, where leaders can come together and the president can sign on the law and we can realize to, it show, and telegraph to the world that yes, we are functional. We are not dysfunctional. We are better together. That rainbows only follow storms. That we, we disagree without being disagreeable. <laughs> yeah, make it a no-brainer and then they look like idiots not passing legislation to help this. Um, you're doing great work, sir. Great to have you on. John Hope Thank Bryan, founder you. and CEO of Operation Hope. We'll speak soon. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. You too. Our viewers in Europe, the Middle East and Africa will be able to watch CNN's Juneteenth, a global celebration of Freedom Concert, beginning at 1 p.m. Eastern time today. So don't miss that. All right, coming up after the break, supercharge, more like super stress. My next guest solved the issue of finding an EV charger when your battery's nearly dead. A nifty solution next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Life's stressful enough. And if you own an electric vehicle, charge anxiety, yes, it's a real thing, is enough to drive you round the bend. That's what happens when your battery runs low and there's a long wait at a charging station. And this EV driver captured the problem perfectly on Twitter. Well, robots called Ziggy are coming to the rescue. These mobile marvels not only charge your car, but will also reserve your own parking space. And the inventor says that'll save time and your blood pressure too. Caradoc Gerenhardt is CEO and founder of EV Safe Charge and the inventor of Ziggy. Great to have you on the show. I think it's one of the biggest impediments and we often talk about it on this show, the concern that you're going to drive somewhere, run out of charge and spend X hours waiting to charge it. Is that, this is the problem you're trying to solve? Exactly. It really solves the problem of range anxiety, which is one of the barriers to mass EV adoption. It's people really worried about how to find a charger and how to get a charge. So Ziggy makes that really easy. And the beauty is, I guess you could have as many of these in a car park, for example, as you need. Every available space could ideally be a charge station if required at some point in the future. Absolutely. So, and the, the, the real differentiator is that today the fixed charging space serves the spot in front of it, whereas Ziggy serves all the spaces in the parking lot. So no need to block spaces for EVs. A lot of drivers get to a parking lot and they're frustrated. They see empty spaces, but they say EV only with Ziggy because Ziggy goes everywhere. Uh, no need to block parking spaces for EV charging. It just serves all the spaces. And does it work for any EV vehicle? If you have a Tesla, could yes, you charge it, it on this as well? Yes, Ziggy works for every EV, including Tesla. Price. Can you give me the yes, cost so of what one of these is and the charging station relative to the fixed infrastructure? Because that's crucial, surely. Yeah, so we're looking at it over a five-year time frame where one Ziggy serves all the parking spaces compared to five fixed chargers that serve the spaces in front of them to really make it cost-effective compared to the fixed chargers that are out there today. Okay, so put that in English. Yes. What am I going to pay so, to buy one of these? <laughs> so, so we're offering Ziggy as a charging as a service. So we take care of everything uh, and offer ah. it to the sites. And then um, versus having, let's say, five chargers that serve the five spaces, they have one Ziggy for the five that serve all of their parking spaces. So you hope that we're saving time. Net net to the consumer, do you think it will equate to, and obviously it depends on who's leasing it and what they choose to charge, but it will cost the same as charging at a fixed unit. 
somewhere else, exactly. for example. That's yeah. exactly what it is, yeah. And there's also advertising space, I think I can see on that. Yeah, so one of the things is we wanted to offset the cost to really make it cost effective for sites to be able to offer this amazing new robotic mobile charger. And so we have communication and advertising and Ziggy is poised to be the first uh, mobile robotic EV charger with communication and advertising to hit the market. And the advertising is there really to offset the cost for the sites. Smart. How long does it take to charge to what level? An hour to... go 30 miles, for example, can you can you quantify it like that for me? And how long does the unit take to recharge once it's charged as many as it can? Yes, so Ziggy provides a typical driver about 30 miles of range in about an hour. So similar to the level two chargers that are out there commercially. And then Ziggy goes back to its home base to recharge off of grid, battery or solar. But in a lot of cases where there's no electricity available on site, Ziggy can go off site for charging and fresh Ziggy's get dropped off. Ah, so that's interesting. So there's a time loss there, perhaps. So it just does one charge and then it has to go and be charged wherever it is. Uh, no, no, because it has it provides about 175 miles of range with the battery that's in Ziggy. And okay. most urban drivers drive 30 miles a day or less, uh, which means most people would charge up for maybe an hour when they're at the mall or at an office business meeting, etc. And so Ziggy would charge the vehicle and then be available to recharge the next vehicle uh, before after charging several vehicles would go back to its home base to recharge. OK, so how long before we see these out there and talk to me about those that you're negotiating with contracts who might be buying these? What's the latest? Absolutely. So it's entering production in 2023. So we hope there will be on the market in uh, 2024. And then um, companies are already signing up uh, to have Ziggy. And so we have um, the Holiday Inn Express Redwood City, Opera Plaza in San Francisco, and the William Vale, which is a luxury hotel in uh, New York's Brooklyn neighborhood. Interesting. So coming soon, very quickly, theft. What's to stop someone driving up with a van and just pushing the thing. It doesn't look that steady and that heavy. How yeah, so, so should we be about theft? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, so because Ziggy is a lot of battery, um, it's going to weigh about a thousand pounds. And so, um, and it's got the automobility feature where it drives around itself to get to the vehicles. Um, It's got sensor bands uh, for safety uh, with cameras all around and GPS. And so, so we always know where where Ziggy is. And so it's uh, definitely very hard to steal, uh, but uh, (laughs) but, but, uh, we we don't anticipate that as being a big issue. Yeah, you've got to start lifting some weights. But you could also use that yes. screen to sort of take a picture of them and say, my friend, you're now on camera. So we're videoing, yes. we're videoing this theft. Leave me alone. Exactly. Um, Cara Doc, great to have you with us. Um, fantastic to uh, chat to you and come back soon and talk to us about progress. Founder and CEO of EV Safe Charge. Thank you for that. All right, coming up next on First Move, Colombia makes a historic shift to the left in Sunday's presidential elections. What does it mean for policy? The details next.
Welcome back to First Move and a major political shift in Colombia. The traditionally conservative country has elected its first leftist president. Gustavo Petro won Sunday's election with slightly more than 50 percent of the vote. The former guerrilla wants to focus on social and economic inequality and curb the nation's reliance on income from fossil fuels. Stefano Posibon has been covering this election, joins us live now from Bogota. Great to have you with us on the show. What's it going to mean in terms of policy? Because investors are very nervous, particularly when you start talking about locking down fossil fuels, which are a huge chunk of government revenues. We're talking huge change, Stefano. Yes, absolutely. What Petro wants to do is a monumental overhaul of, uh, of Colombia's economy. He wants to get, get, get away from uh, relying on exports of fossil fuel, especially oil and coal. This country exports a lot of coal, and especially after the war in Ukraine, uh, the exports of coal have uh, grown up significantly and the revenues from those exports. But he also wants a complete new change of narrative in the relationship with the United States, Julia. We were lucky to speak with Petro just on Thursday last week, so only a couple of days before he uh, completed his monumental um, uh, victory. And here's what he told us about uh, what he wants to propose to Joe Biden. Did you renegotiate a free trade agreement with the U.S.? Yes. Yes, but under certain circumstances. What I'd propose, President Biden, if I get elected, is a political dialogue around three issues, protecting the Amazon, ending the war on drugs, and energy transition. So when he says energy transition, Julia, is exactly what you were talking about, getting away from oil, coal, fracking. Colombia has begun to start doing fracking just a couple of months ago. And that, that has to change. That will change now that the new man is in power, Julia. Yeah, half of exports, 10 percent or close to of national income. It's a huge shift and a monumental decision. Yeah. What about for the peace accord? Was he signed back in 2016, challenged under the previous president? What's it going to mean for adherence to that peace accord with FARC? Yes, Petro during his campaign has uh, continuously um, sent out the message that he stood for peace. Uh, that was the first point he touched in his speech last night when, uh, when he was proclaimed a victor. Petro is a former guerrilla uh, fighter and uh, he has campaigned in favor of uh, the, the peace agreement. He is a person who moved from armed struggle into po civil political life uh, three decades ago. And he says he wants to do a new uh, peace agreement with uh, those left-wing guerrillas who are still fighting the Colombia states, uh, such as the ELN, uh, the National Liberation Army. But of course, uh, now the challenge is he is the man in power. He is the person who needs to improve the security situations in the areas, uh, in the outskirts of this country that still have a deteriorating, um, a deteriorating security situation. Just yesterday, three people were killed with, uh, in, in connection with the election. And so right. a big challenge ahead of him. He says he wants to bring peace. Let's see if he can do it, Julia. Agreed. Stefano, great to chat to you. Stefano Posibon there. Okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Ben Mankiewicz. On this season of The Plot Thickens, we're exploring the world of renegade movie director John Ford. Ford was a living legend, a cinematic giant, and also a notorious egomaniac who could unload on actors. You'll hear from the best of them, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, even Ricardo Montalban. Find out how Ford's legacy survives his personal demons. The Plot Thickens, Decoding John Ford, hosted by me, Ben Mankiewicz. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.